Jim Hawkins was finally staggering back to bed after a long, hard day of working on the Hispaniola. Last minute, he took a turn and decided that he would like to have an apple from the apple barrel before bed. Once Jim got to the barrel, however, he found that it was nearly empty and he had to climb inside of it to get one of the last remaining treats. Once inside, Jim heard much shuffling and fumbling about as several men surrounded the barrel and Jim was about to make his presence known when what he heard next knocked the breath out of him as if he had been struck in the chest. Long John, whom Jim had spent the past several weeks growing to be the dearest of friends with, had gathered another young sailor about him, flattering and chattering him up. He used several of the same compliments for the young man that he used for Jim, smart as paint and the like. All of the affection of a dear uncle that he had shown Jim was now lavished on this other young man, but the stories John Silver told the young man were very different than those he had divulged to Jim in his kitchen. Silver was telling the young man how he had been the quartermaster aboard the ship of the famous Captain Flint. Suddenly, with a chill, Jim was washed in clarity. The way Silver had led the crew in the same sea shanty that the captain had led the guests at the Benbow Inn in, the fact that his parrot was named Captain Flint, and the day that Jim had seen Black Dog in the pub, why, Silver had never tried to catch his old shipmate at all. Jim was violently angry, but tried his best to crush these feelings in favor of paying attention to the conversation. Captain Smollett had been right not to trust the men, as now they gathered around the young sailor and tried to persuade him to join them in mutiny. Silver cheerfully told the young man that he made twice as much money as a member of Flint's crew than he had ever made sailing for England. He revealed that while he was away, his wife had withdrawn all of his money from his years of piracy and sold their inn, and she would meet him at a location they had discussed after he had mutinied and was no longer welcome in England. The pirates were recruiting the members of Smollett's crew for a mutiny. Jim had never felt so betrayed. He felt like a fool as he heard the men complaining a blue streak about wanting to begin the uprising now. Long John ordered patience, though, as it was convenient to have Captain Smollett do half of their sailing for them, and handy to have the service of a doctor on board in case anyone grew sick or injured. Once the mutiny began, these luxuries would be lost. He also complimented Smollett on his control of the crew, and openly joked with the men that with their impatience and lack of discipline, they would eat, drink, and be merry until they were completely out of supplies once Smollett was gone. About the squire, however, he had none of the respectful words he had for the captain and the doctor, but rather gleefully described how he longed for the time when he could strangle the simple blabbermouthed man. He then moved on to bragging about how he had been the one to give Mr. Arrow too much drink for him to be able to keep his feet on deck during the stormy night that they had lost him. He was too honest of a man for his own good, and it hadn't taken long for Silver to find his weakness and exploit it. The young sailor was persuaded to join the mutiny, and the men were complaining about needing to wait for the action until after the treasure was found and safely aboard the ship, since they had no map. The mood was getting very foul as Long John refused to be in a hurry, and apparently there were men who refused to join the pirates, until at last there came a call of Land Ho! from above decks, and the men dispersed. When Jim freed himself from the barrel and made it topside, he saw Long John talking with the squire and got another chill at how friendly he could be with the man he planned to kill with his own two hands. It was terrifying how two-faced he was, and seeing how convincing he could be made Jim wonder if they had ever really been friends at all. 
Jim slid up to the doctor's side and told him to take the captain and the squire to his private cabin, then sent for Jim to come and serve them, as they were all in terrible trouble. The doctor looked stern for a moment, but then put on a cheerful act and took the other men aside, and then Jim was summoned shortly after. Once inside, and certain they were not being overheard, Jim told the man everything he had heard below decks, and, to the squire's credit, he immediately apologized to the captain for questioning his judgment. They didn't know how many men were still on their side, and as such, they knew they needed to assume they were outnumbered. The men knew they needed to know who was faithful to the who was a faithful sailor, and who was a mutineer, before they made their move, so they decided to wait and see who they could rely upon, for as it was, their numbers stood at sixteen men versus six men with the captain. By the next morning, they were much closer to the island, and Jim could make out the wild-looking trees and jungle and hills and three great stone spires beyond. Jim volunteered to go ashore on one of the boats and observed that all the men, other than Long John, were full of complaints and grumbling. They were anxious to start the battle, and it became harder and harder for them to show any restraint. Jim observed that, as they grew closer to shore, the trees leaned over the water. There was a rotten, sulfurous smell in the air, and Jim heard Dr. Livesey mention that there was likely to be fever here. Getting on land, the men became more and more reluctant to take orders, venom shining in their eyes, while Long John desperately tried to overcompensate and keep their cover from being blown. After their exploration, when they were back on board, the captain made it clear that the only thing holding the men back from striking now was Silver himself. Smollett proposed that they let the men go ashore for an afternoon and test that Silver would get the men under control, since it was still too early for them to mutiny. This was a temporary solution, but it would keep the peace long enough for the captain's party to try to begin a plan. Jim knew he would only be in the way if he stayed with the six men who stayed aboard the Hispaniola, and the other two parties of six were unlikely to act while ashore, so Jim hopped into a boat, but before Silver could use the boy to his advantage, he swung himself into one of the low-hanging trees and fled deeply into the jungle as he could. He noted several trees, much like oaks, yet they twisted their branches straight out from their sides, then winding and winded and wiggled about. He would later learn that they were called live oaks. Jim was taking in all of these strange plants and animals, bathing in their sounds now that he could no longer hear Long John shouting after him. He thought he had gotten away with all, when all of the birds around him fled in terror, only for him to realize that Long John and the pirates had somehow caught up to him. Jim crawled stealthily and peeked over the edge of the hill, still in the trees, as he watched and listened to the pirates at their plotting. He found Silver talking to a sailor named Tom, and the two were arguing, politely at first, but as Tom came to realize just how corrupt Silver was, the argument became heated. Then there was screaming in the background that was sharply cut off, its echo drowned out by the birds fleeing again. Tom tried to make Silver see reason and rejoin the captain. He paused and asked Silver what that horrible sound had been. John replied that the death shout must have been Alan. Tom turned in a flash and said that at least Alan had not forgotten his duty and lost his honor. They had not made a villain out of him, and they wouldn't make a villain out of Tom either. At that, Tom, one of the few honest sailors left, turned his back on Long John and began to walk away. As he did, the one-legged man kept up with a, crept up with agility so terrible that he might have come from one of Jim's nightmares. 
He threw his crutch at the man, hitting him square in the back and breaking it with a sickening, wet crunch. He then climbed on top of poor Tom and stabbed him to death. Jim had never seen such violence and was so shocked into complete numbness, his vision swam and he nearly fainted. Once he had recovered himself, he crawled away as stealthily as he could. Then he climbed to his feet and fled blindly through the jungle. He ran wildly without direction, simply trying to put as much distance between himself and the loss of human life that he had just witnessed. He had no idea where he was going or how fast, allowing his frenzied panic to propel him through the unfamiliar landscape until he was completely lost. To his surprise, he was not the only frightened soul tearing through the trees. Jim found himself face to face with a strange, wild man. Jim was unsure whether to be more afraid of this man or the pirates, but he felt safe knowing that he was armed and could protect himself as he approached the stranger. The man dropped to his knees before Jim and introduced himself as Ben Gunn. Ben said that he had not spoken to another man in three years. He was wearing nothing but ship's sails held together by an aged leather belt. He had been marooned by pirates and lived on goats and berries and fish for years and now missed cheese more than anything in the world. He said he even dreamed of cheese. <laughs> Me too, my dude. <laughs> After three years of being marooned, he could probably use the, some calcium and fat. Anyway, Jim told Ben that if they came home, he could have all the cheese he wanted. Ben told Jim that he had been brought up in a very religious household and had fallen into bad decisions and piracy. He believed that his being marooned was his punishment and now atoning now was atoned for and was going back on the straight and narrow he told jim that he was very very rich of course being rich on an island all alone doesn't really do you any good so he asked jim if he thought that the squire would let him keep some of the treasure if he gave them the rest in exchange for a trip home to civilization Jim said that they were all entitled to a share after ridding themselves of the pirates. They would be a skeleton crew and in need of more help anyway. Upon hearing of pirates, a shadow passed over Ben's face and he gripped Jim's hand. He was pleased to hear that Captain Flint was dead, but revealed that he had always feared Silver more than Flint. He was absolutely terrified. Jim told Ben the story of the whole voyage and Ben finally stopped talking long enough to listen. He liked Jim all the more for hearing that they were on the same side. He patted the boy on the head and said that he was perfectly happy to share his massive treasure so long as he got passage home. He told Jim of how Flint and his six of his men had come to this very island to bury his treasure, but only Flint had ever returned. Billy Bones was the mate and Long John was the quartermaster, and when they asked where the treasure was, Flint told them that if they wanted to know, they could go ashore and find it. Ben Gunn and a few others took up the offer, but never finding it, the other men left Ben on the island. Now he only hopes his old mother is still alive so that he can see her again, and hopes to eat a proper Christian diet again, which I take to mean lots and lots of cheese. They were interrupted by the firing of a cannon, and the two fled under the trees, as Ben continued to prattle about building his own little chapel and cemetery before the two of them came upon an old abandoned fort flying the Union Jack. Back on the ship, the doctor had just found out that Jim had gone ashore, and while he never doubted Jim's loyalty, he was worried for the boy's safety. 
The doctor took a small boat and went ashore and founded the old stockade next to a freshwater spring. The wall seemed like a defensible spot and the ship was out of usable water. The doctor heard Alan's death cry and assumed that it was Jim and the boy was lost. The doctor went back aboard the Hispaniola where the squire was nearly swooning in response to Alan's scream. Together, the faithful men on the ship overtook the six mutineers. They loaded as many supplies as they could into one of the jolly boats and took them back to the stockade. They provisioned the palisade for after several trips. Then they each took a musket and a cutlass and dumped all the powder on board the ship into the ocean before leaving the ship and the captives after persuading one of the sailors to rejoin the captain. The men rowed ashore and into the stockade, leaving the pirates with the ship, but no food, water, drink, or weapons. This seemed like a wonderful idea, except that the little boat was holding far more than she had the strength for, and the little boat went under, leaving all of their supplies and guns useless. Still, the cannons on the ship had been loaded as they left, and the pirates fired them at the fort. The shots all missed, but the mutineers had taken advantage of the distraction to steal the men's guns and food that the doctor had snuck off from the ship earlier. Overall, the whole situation was looking pretty helpless, and the men were just needing some good news when Jim Hawkins, whom they presumed dead, climbed into the stockade. It's kind of interesting there, um, in the story, the last couple chapters of this segment, this quarter of the story, were written from Dr. Livesey's perspective, and so they were summed up a lot more quickly than the sections narrated by Jim, mostly because the doctor tends to talk on and on with a lot more flowery language, so basically he was using a lot of words to not say that much in the end, so I was able to summarize him a lot more quickly than I was the portions of the story that are from Jim's perspective, because Jim, I think, being just a young man as he's writing this, is just a little bit more uh, direct in his narration. Though it's interesting to see Jim's narration as contrasted to Jim's actions, because he's discussing the things he did as a younger boy. It does kind of give you a hint as to the man that he will become by the end of the story. This section is, of course, part where Jim gets a lot of kind of uncomfortable revelations as he realized just how tricky Long John Silver is. And he describes at several points where after he's seen, you know, and heard Long John talking about his plans for mutiny, how he can no longer feel safe even just in Long John's presence because he can see how casually and kindly and friendly he can talk to and interact with people that he just talked about murdering a few minutes ago. And this uh, duplicitousness makes Jim all the more uncomfortable with him. So we've spent the whole story up until this point kind of looking towards Jim getting closer and closer to Long John only for that to be torn apart really, really abruptly. This must seem strange to Silver, who has no idea that Jim has overheard him, and so Jim spends a lot of this portion of the story avoiding Silver simply because he doesn't know how to hide the fact that he's now afraid of and disgusted by the man who they were so friendly with just a couple days ago. He's basically just afraid of revealing accidentally that he's overheard the entire plan without even really having to say anything just in his changed countenance towards Long John Silver. 
so we're in a very tense spot. Poor Dr. Livesey spent all night long supplying the stockade, and he thought he was being so clever to leave all the pirates that were on board the ship with absolutely no supplies, so that by the time they get back there, they'll be hungry and thirsty, probably super thirsty, because it's probably really hot on that ship and everything like that. And like I said, he had no more water aboard the ship, so he probably thought of this as a good time to re, you know, resupply them as well only for all of the supplies that he filled the stockade with to be stolen by the pirates. So we, it leaves him in a much worse situation than he had left rather than better. Um, I think he was definitely due the good news of finding out that Jim was still alive. I'm not sure yet how he's going to react to the reveal of Ben Gunn, but I guess we will find out next week. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy Treasure Island as it goes on. We should have about two more parts, and we'll do a brief talk about Robert Louis Stevenson as well at the end of episode four. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful, wonderful day.